Welcome back to MERS Monday for more than 10 years, the Michigan political podcast. In this week's New Year's Day edition of MERS Monday, John Walsh, president of the Michigan Manufacturers Association, describes his organization's biggest policy concerns and hopes for 2024. After weighing in on more than 250 bills this past year, Chief Executive Officer Monique Stanton of the Michigan League for Public Policy describes 2023 as a marathon on a sprint pace. Additionally, First Vice President Melanie Riska of the Michigan Association of Municipal Clerks says, please slow down when it comes to elections legislation. Now, here's MERS podcast host, Samantha Shriver. Thank you so much, Mark Bayshore, for kicking off today's episode of the MERS Monday podcast, which is going to be our New Year's Day episode. I am pre-recording this opening segment on December 29th, and am here with John Walsh, the president and CEO of the Michigan Manufacturers Association. Happy New Year's, John. Thanks, Sam, and same to you as well. How do you like to finish a year? What are some of your personal traditions? So uh, professionally, you know, we've gone through the year-end reviews with all of our employees, took a look at how we did with our board of directors. It's all the the function that's necessary to run an association and make sure you acknowledge uh, the employees and the hard work they did. So that's been a big part. Uh, And then we also have holiday parties with our staff. And uh, so it's been good, a really good year-end. Personally, I'm actually in the middle of um, getting ready for the new year. So it's uh, it's time to go through projects long deferred or to uh, go to Costco and store up for the, for the next year. It's really kind of simple, but uh, fun stuff. Do you have any personal New Year's resolutions? You know, I think a couple. Uh, one, um, I'd like to stay in touch better with my uh, family, uh, my siblings. Uh, I see my kids plenty and I like to see my uh, family a little more and uh, would like to be a little better at practicing my faith, meaning getting to church uh, weekly. So those are probably probably my two two top ones. That's awesome. Now, obviously, 2023 was a historical year with the legislature having the Democratic trifecta, a bunch of other things that made up 2023. But for the MMA's perspective, what did this past year mean for you all? So it was a, it was a busy year, first and foremost. Um on top of the change from Republican to Democratic control of the legislature, we just plain and simply had dozens upon dozens of brand new legislators. So it took a great deal of time to get to know people, to get a feel for who was in leadership and where they were headed. And then from from the, the stance of having the Democrats in charge, there was a whole new slew of bills introduced and priorities that were important to the Democratic Party and their supporters, and we had to uh, react to those. Um, Some we opposed, uh, some we were uh, fully engaged with. We were always engaged, and we're thankful for that. Sam, and I mean that sincerely. Um, You know, democracy means you have ideas coming and going, and you have conversations. You can have debate. Uh, You can agree on some and disagree on others, but we were always very thankful uh, to the governor and to the legislature for having the opportunity to share our opinion and We had some wins and and we had some losses, but overall, uh, we felt like we made a real impact uh, with the legislature and getting to know them, but also educating them on the issues that are most important to us. I know that a kind of 
end of the year policy that was a bit of a centerfold of this legislature was the 100% clean energy by 2040 package, with the, which the MMA was opposed to, uh, specifically the deadline setting measures of this legislation. How does the conversation look now for you and your members now that that bill has been signed into law? So we we worked hard on that bill. And uh, we, as I had mentioned to you in a prior conversation, we liked the governor's initial effort and her plan, uh, which was a little longer out and, and we thought a little bit more reasonable. Uh, we worked hard to create some off ramps in the uh, legislation that was passed. We want a clean planet. Our owners, our operators, our manufacturing employees want the same. It was really a question of what was reasonable and 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 the when, the how and the when. That's what we were negotiating over. Our role now, like after or like it would be with the passage of any legislation, is to educate our members on what it means. So when the dust settled and the actual language was adopted and signed into law, our role now is to educate our members on complying with the law. And then uh, we'll continue to work with the legislature. You know, as time passes, um, we're not going to pick up a mantle in January, but over time we'll be looking for opportunities to revisit the legislation when it's appropriate. First and foremost, though, educate members, get them ready to comply with the law. I I guess a question that I have is that, are you just completely confident that this package is something that will increase energy cost? Or is there a chance that by the time 2028 comes around and these plans start being developed, these clean energy plans that utilities have to deliver, maybe it's not going to be that bad in terms of cost? Is that still a possibility? It's it's always a possibility. Uh, 2028, even though it seems not so far away, um, in the years after uh, we could see remarkable technological changes. We can't predict that. What we're looking at uh, when we are concerned about rising costs is the information that's available to us today. And then we compare that uh, with other states and their ability to attract and retain their manufacturing base. So I won't rule out the possibility, um, but it's our belief that it will be uh, more expensive. We just can't predict the future uh, any more than uh, you or a legislator could Let's hope for the best. I know that you have obviously talked about manufacturing really being Michigan's bread and butter, kind of its origin story, if that's a fair observation. What would you say are some present day restrictions that your members are most concerned about with 2024, going into 2024? So energy is one. And and again, educating our members, getting them comfortable, and then working with groups like the MEDC and others to help get the word out about what the energy package is and isn't, so that as we try to bring in uh, manufacturing, there's a, a better understanding of, of what the new law requires. The other challenges uh, will be um, you know, the, the labor environment. Um, we saw a strike this year that uh, went on for about six weeks. It was disruptive, not just to the OEM, uh, the auto OEMs, but also to the supply chain. Thankfully, it was relatively short in duration, and we didn't see uh, the layoffs that could have occurred if it went a few more weeks longer uh, throughout the supply chain. But there's still some recovery. So a smaller member, uh, a smaller manufacturer, 20 to 50 employees, uh, he has different financial obligations than a large OEM does. And working with their banks uh, and their intern suppliers and customers to make sure that they could survive that two-month dip, we're still working on that with them. 
Do you think the story of the historical UAW strike, is that story now completed or will we start to see some long-term aftershock of it starting this year? I think there, there's two ways I would answer it. Number one, uh, Sean Fain, the leader of the UAW, has made um, really very public statements. He's uh, now feeling confident and he has uh, encouraged his membership to support efforts to broaden uh, UAW membership to include transplant corporations. So that is going to continue based on the volume uh, following settlement with the Detroit Three. I think he's very much focused on that. The other thing that we'll see, and it, it won't necessarily be uh, evident all the time, but the OEMs uh, will have to make decisions uh, within their manufacturing setting about how they can afford this. They wouldn't have reached the agreement if they couldn't, but they're going to have to decide on what's the proper ratio of white collar to blue collar workers, where are parts made, who's making them, do they stay in Michigan, uh, do they stay in the United States? Those are all unpredictable. They're completely in the in the hands of uh, the bargaining parties, uh, the company and the labor. So I think we'll still th see things, but they're going to be spread out over time. We, we just don't, they won't all occur at one time. While you are currently the president of the MMA, you were also a former member of the state house. And in 2018, you were the state budget director, correct? Correct. Mm -hmm. I, an interesting question, and I recently did my story for MERS, my pundit piece. But I want to ask you this question. Who do you think were the biggest winners and losers of 2023? Uh, in terms of the budget? It could be about, you can do, you mm -hmm. can be as creative as you want to be. Okay. From a budgetary standpoint, uh, you know, I think the having the availability of federal funds and a healthy budget allowed the state to... Uh, do some work that that needed to be done. Uh, we do need investment dollars, incentives to attract businesses to come to Michigan. We're competing with uh, 49 other states and the entire world for that matter. So I was really pleased to see continued funding there. For our citizens, uh, the availability of additional training in uh, skilled trades and in particular manufacturing is really important. That allows a person to perhaps get a better job, um, move up the uh, chain, so to speak, and it assures our employers that there's going to be a ready and willing and trained workforce. So we were really pleased. I think those are big wins uh, looking out there. You know, as I look, I didn't consume, I have to confess, the entire uh, education budget, but I think that there were some definite improvements in the budget and some acknowledgments that there are some systemic uh, issues in a number of school districts that needed to be addressed. The legislature did that in terms of taking care of some long-term debt. Um, I think that'll be helpful to the citizens uh, and the students in those districts. So those were some big winners. You know, I, I really can't, Sam, there was just so much money. It's hard for me to tell you that there was any real loser. There were people who asked for money and didn't get it. Uh, there were people who wanted more, but um, that that healthy Michigan budget and really this huge cash inf infusion from the feds allowed everything to be uh, touched. So I don't see any losers, but I saw some wise investments, uh, particularly in the education area, um, infrastructure, of course, moving forward. So I was pleased with that. I, I do like to talk about corporate incentives, specifically with Michigan's SOAR fund, which is designed to lure large-scale economic development into our state. I know the MMA is supportive of SOAR, but... 
In the beginning of the year, the Democratic-led legislature approved a system where for the next several fiscal years back-to-back, there's automatic deposits into the SOAR fund if the money is available in corporate income tax ranging from $460 million to $500 million. I, I would make a bet that $500 million can be spent on a lot of different things in a state. Uh, was it wise to have these automatic SOAR fund deposits, do you think? Because uh, you don't know what the next fiscal year is going to look like. It, it was wise. Uh, you're talking about investments for the future of the state of Michigan in terms of retaining our current employee base uh, and employer base, but also attracting uh, new employers and new jobs to the state of Michigan. As I mentioned earlier, there are 49 other states expending funds or changing legislation in a, in a way or both to bring businesses in, and we have to be in that game. Uh, we have 20% of our state domestic product is based in manufacturing. We think that's important to protect and grow moving forward. The other thing that makes it important, Sam, is that other states have long-term investments. So when you go out, when the MEDC is out trying to attract uh, businesses to come in and they do a great job going out there to look and attract folks to Michigan. The ability to say this is what the future holds, because negotiations don't always happen just within a single year. It can be a multi-year project, a multi-year conversation. But to be able to say that Michigan is committed to investments in the future in infrastructure and other programs to bring businesses here, we think that's huge. Well, what is your response to critics who describe the SOAR fund as a corporate welfare pot? Yeah, it's a, it's an often stated and, and wonderful soundbite. Uh, I don't agree. Um, in terms of a state policy, you know, as a legislator, as a member of the Senator cabinet, um, now with the MMA and working with the Whitmer administration and the legislature, these are investments in our long-term future. Uh, I don't think that this is any kind of uh, you know, just a corporate fund that that people can raid, but rather it incentivizes people to make even greater investments in our state of Michigan and hire more people. You hire more people, that's more jobs. Talk about building a, a population, have good jobs, that leads to good economy, that leads to good communities, good schools. Uh, I think that's a big pillar of our future. I want to talk about a controversial, uh, a controversy of the SOAR fund, which was in November of this year, Ford Motor Company announcing that its planned battery park in Marshall, which was incentivized through this fund, uh, will generate 1,700 jobs as opposed to the expected 2,500 jobs that were promoted when Ford was being awarded more than $330 million from this fund. I've heard some people raise the question of why did the Ford Motor Company draw back the number of jobs that was going to be promoting and why was there that temporary freeze on production? I know some have made the speculation, is it because of things like the clean energy package as it was soaring through the legislature? Is it because of things like the UAW strike? Of course, you don't speak on behalf of Ford, but what are some guesses that you would make as to why a major corporation would maybe draw back in the state of Michigan? Yeah, I, one, I you know I have to just reinforce um, those are details we wouldn't know as an association about what decisions our members make, whether it's the smallest or the largest like Ford. But what I can say is, I use an example. Um, whenever a company is looking at a new product, a new investment, you, there are plans uh, and spe specs that you come up with and discuss and, and think about. 
But all the while, the market is changing in any number of ways. Um, and you mentioned a good number of variables that might have changed the decision. I can't even begin to speculate at the mix, but I'm not surprised at change, nor should we be. Uh, the economy is very active. It's not static in any way. And as market demands change or uh, opportunities or supply change, uh, supply change uh, changes can make a company revise its decisions up or down. So that's as best as I can do for today. Kind of as we approach the end of this interview, I want to ask about things that you're most concerned about, most excited about for 2024. I'll start with things that you're most concerned about. I know that right now there's legislation circulating for the polluter pay legislation. Mm -hmm. There is the 15 weeks paid family leave. There is the Death Star repeal. What are kind of some of your top things that were the top battles that you're gearing up for? Yeah, the ones that we're, we're, we're really getting ready for the new year uh, would be what some call the Pluto, Pluto pay bill. We see it as a challenge to good law that we have here that allows um, a company to come in and take over property and and revive it to rehabilitate it and put it into good use. So we're going to be working pretty hard against the the what we think is an inappropriate um, connotation uh, that Pluto Pay says. It's a great phrase, but it doesn't reflect the true existence of the laws that we have today uh, and also our intentions to get people to buy property and clean it up uh, when it's orphaned, when there's no owner or uh, no successor uh, liability. Um, we want somebody to be able to go in there and feel confident they can make the investment to clean that up. So we'll be working hard on that. So in your opinion, what makes this legislation, which has been introduced by Democrats before, and what makes it so flawed in your eyes? Because the way that they promote it seems like such a simple concept is that you are responsible for this proper property. You're responsible for cleaning up the mess. What is the what is the fatal flaw? Yeah, the, the fatal flaw is that it, it inhibits the potential purchaser of a property that's been orphaned. So that is a property that has been abandoned by a prior uh, polluter. Um, there are now laws in place that would hold them responsible if they still existed. But if they don't exist, we think that this legislation is is it is inhibiting to that policy we have now, which allows somebody to come in and take it forward and clean it up. So, you know, we'd have to spend a lot of time, you know, separate and apart from this interview to go into more details. But but that's the bottom line. And other other areas of concern for the new year. So we're going to continue to work um, in terms of other concerns. We'll continue to work on the um, mandatory paid leave. Uh, we already have a paid leave program uh, in Michigan. Um, we we like the, the leave as it is. We're concerned at the cost. Uh, it would be, in our estimate, uh, $1.5 billion um, that would have to be shared by employees and employers. So it's not a, a free lunch, so to speak, uh, for employees. We think there are other ways that we can help employees um, move forward, and we'd love to have the conversation with the legislature and the governor's office, things like improving our child care um, structure in the state of Michigan and take a look at TriShare and blowing that up uh, to a larger program. It's somewhere uh, above you know, a prototype, but, but not quite funded to the full extent. So we're going to approach the table in a way that we hope is uh, fair to employees and employers and does something good for our community. So we're watchful on that. 
And then we are very concerned, you know, there's some uh, legislation that would change um, how localities, local governments are able to affect pay rate uh, wages, um, wages, I'm saying the same. The problem with that is we have some, you know, something under 2000 local governmental units that potentially could have the ability to set pay rates within on private sector within their community. So if you're a small business, but you have two or three locations, you may have two or three different uh, pay rates. If it's already for a multinational or a national company, there's 50 states and laws to deal with already. Add on to that uh, the multitude of local communities uh, we think would be a real inhibitor to growth, um, both in employment and in investment. Now, as last but not least, but as for things that you're excited about, especially things that you see as very doable now that we're going into a era of split power, especially in the House now being 54 and 54 seats. So we're really excited by the existing bipartisan support for continued training, uh, going pro and reconnect, uh, taking folks that are in the workplace already and giving them the opportunity to skill up and be ready for the future. Um, we are really uh, quite appreciative of the governor's efforts to take a look at getting people trained and ready for the EV uh, industry uh, moving forward. So those are two things we think we have great opportunities to continue to work with on a bipartisan uh, basis. Uh, the governor has been working with us and her staff with regard to some environmental regulations. Um, business is always looking for stability and certainty. And of course, we have opinions uh, on regulatory matters, but to help refine how you approach the regulatory agency and within what time frame they'll respond could be huge in and of itself, uh, let alone what the result is. So we're very happy with that effort uh, underway by the administration, and we continue to work with them closely on that. And I think, you know, this is put on my old uh, budget director hat. It's going to be an interesting year. The state budget is healthy, but they're going to be missing um, all the federal money. So for some of the the what I'll call, you know, kind of the new and rookie legislators, they've been through this massive budget. Now they have to make some adjustments. I'm going to be interested to watch that. I, I don't have a negative or a positive on it. It's just it, it's going to be an interesting process to watch. Um, I'm always helpful to sit with anybody, Republican or Democrat, and share what knowledge I have or opinion, uh, but I know that it's going to be difficult, too strong of a word, but it's going to be a different budget process coming up. So I'm going to watch that with some interest too. Do you think because those federal dollars aren't there, there might be some panic once we kick off the budget proposals and maybe some people screaming that the sky is falling? It's possible because you're going to have some folks that are in just a single term or even a single year and 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 having had, well, how to state this better, they never had to say no or rarely. You know, it had to be really unreasonable or inappropriate, meaning it wasn't delivering the 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 good uh, for society that might have been intended. But now they're going to have to pull back a little bit. And so that's going to cause some concern. But I think with uh, solid leadership, um, they'll be able to uh, assuage those fears and move forward. But there's going to be a little bit of that. We'll, we'll see. John Walsh, the president and CEO of the Michigan Manufacturers Association. Thank you so much for sure. coming on our New Year's episode, New Year's Day episode of the MERS Monday podcast. Thank you, Sam. Glad to be here. Straight up, relaxing.
joining us now for today's episode of the MERS Monday podcast, which is our special New Year's Day episode, is Melanie Riska. She is a Sterling Heights City clerk, but she is with us today speaking in her capacity as the first vice president of the Michigan Association of Municipal Clerks. Hi, Melanie. How are you doing today? I am great. I'm happy to be here today. So I really wanted the Association of Municipal Clerks here on for the podcast with it being our New Year's Day episode, because obviously you all have a fairly wild 2024 year ahead of you. (laughs) Yes, it's definitely going to be a busy year. Our presidential primary is on February 27th. Um, but yeah, we are we're gearing up for probably one of the most historic uh, presidential election years. What are you expecting in terms of voter turnout for the February 27th presidential primary election? Do you imagine the early primary being kind of this calm warm up for kicking off some of the new Prop 2 election procedures? Or are you anticipating something a bit more chaotic? I think Right now, we, and we're focusing on educating our voters on the different options that they now have, um, you know, voting wise, be it early voting, permanent ballot uh, voting or, you know, voting in person. In 2020, our turnout here in Sterling Heights was about 32 percent. We expect that we'll probably get about the same um, going into the February 27th presidential primary across the state, I think the more educated voters are going to be about their different options. I think it will entice voters to come out and and cast their ballot on, on at the presidential primary. So at first, you know, the more education we get out, I think the more calm it will it will be. But, you know, behind the scenes, it's going to be a little bit chaotic because we're implementing all of these new um, yeah, different methods of, of voting. And so clerks are vigorously working to make sure that we are fulfilling our constitutional obligations in providing, you know, voting accessibility um, and, and convenience, if you will. So um, I think, you know, it's kind of chaotic behind the scenes, but I think up front, it's a, it looks a little bit calm before the big storm that comes in in November. So uh, have you already started sending out materials for the presidential primary election? When does that begin? So clerks across the state are beginning to send out information cards to voters um, indicating when early voting days are going to be. Um, that should be done, you know, in December, um, by the end of December, hopefully. Um, if not, it'll be sometime in mid-January. Um, and then shortly thereafter, people are going to start uh, receiving their ballots. So ballots go out 40 days before the election if you're on the uh, permanent absent voter ballot list. And so uh, we've already started begun sending information out to voters. Now, can you already start sending out requests or applications for an absentee ballot? Yeah, so we've already sent out our applications. Uh, I think most of the communities probably have likely already sent theirs out as well. Um, to, applications to get a ballot, at which time voters are, have the ability to choose, you know, if they want to be put on a permanent ballot list, which means you get a ballot forevermore, uh, no need to fill out future applications. But additionally, on top of the absentee application that's being sent out, voters who are already on that permanent ballot list are going to be receiving a a ballot preference form. So for presidential primaries, voters have to select a preference ballot. So either a Republican ballot, a Democratic ballot, or if you also have a proposal in your community, a a, um, nonpartisan proposal-only ballot. 
So those forms are going out as well. So voters are going to get a lot of information over the next few weeks um, about uh, just different things, uh, whether it's, you know, ballot selection, ballot application, um, early voting information. Now, how many applications could do you have any numbers in terms of how many applications you've sent out so far? In the city of Sterling Heights, we have about 35,000 people on our permanent application list. And we currently have about, I think about 7,000 people on our permanent ballot list. So altogether, um, well over 40,000 either application or ballot selection forms have gone out. Now, I, I, I am a bit curious, which of these proposal to new procedures, new measures, uh, which one has been the most difficult for you to prepare for that you view as possibly being the most challenging? I think it's the prepping of all of the changes. So early voting is new to our state. There is a lot of different preparations that need to um, go into that. The State Bureau of Elections is working vigorously to make sure that we have the technology to be able to accommodate voters, yet keep the integrity and security of our elections. Um, and our, we're working on getting additional equipment across the state and in all of our jurisdictions to be able to accommodate, you know, early voting. Um, and then we, the permanent ballot listing is also very new. Um, so a lot of it is planning. You know, we like to say that, you know, anything that changes in elections, which we have changes all the time, it's really nine 95% planning and 5% implementation, right? So all of the changes that we have between from the early voting and the deadlines and this, the permanent ballot listing, um, the, you know, deadlines in particular are, we have to accommodate all of those. So when you talk about all of the changes that Prop 2 has, has, has brought to us, to try to identify one over another on what's more complicated or chaotic over another is quite challenging because you really have to do it all together, right? There's all kinds of um, different changes that we have to implement all at once. And so it just takes a lot of planning. Not quite sure if that answered your question exactly, but did the Association of Municipal Clerks, did you all take a position on Prop 2 when it was on the ballot? We did not take a formal position on Prop 2. There were, you know, in talking with clerks over the past couple years before Prop 2 was presented, there are, there's a lot of good in Prop 2. Um, there's a lot of challenges that were in Prop 2. So the association as a whole did not take a position. Uh, clerks individually obviously may have taken a position on supporting or um, not supporting it. Do you yourself personally, looking back at Prop 2 and then also looking at all the things you're planning for now, do you wish that it was smaller, that maybe it wasn't all of these new reforms all at once? Yes. <laughs> Whenever there's a mass change, um, I mean, we have we have fundamentally changed our election process at this point. Um, and it's it a lot of times it's hard to acknowledge or it's hard to see what work has to go into it to uh, make those changes work. I mean, now these are constitutional requirements and constitutional um, protections that voters have, which is a great thing. Um, but all of it at once is is it's trying on local communities, not only, um, you know, from a, a money perspective and equipment perspective, but also just from a pure human labor perspective, right? I mean, somebody actually has to sit down and do the work and plan it all out. And when you are trying to educate, you know, over 1600 clerks throughout the state, 
um, as well as your voters and so on. It just, it becomes, it's it's challenging because we all have different resources. Uh, you know, we, we have a lot of rural communities who the clerk is part-time, they have a full-time job um, and they're a one-person office. And to ask them to implement all of these changes is just, it's a, it's a bit challenging. So yeah, I, I wish it was a little, I wish it was pieced together a little bit, um, you know, or separated a little bit, but um, it, we are where we are now and clerks are resilient and we'll find a way to get it done. Have you had to hire some new people in Sterling Heights to help with some of these changes? Yeah, so I have an amazing team um, and I'm very fortunate. Uh, we have the resources for the most part um, and we have a pool of election inspectors that routinely come and help us during election time with our absent voter office and whatnot. But yes, we have definitely uh, hired more people um, and trained a lot more people and, you know, as we gear up for early voting. Now, I also want to talk about technology, especially new technologies like artificial intelligence. Uh, how concerned are you about these possibly being used to misinform voters this year, even with the new AI regulations for political materials and advertisements? So I thought about that question. I, I did read that and I, I thought about it for a little bit. And at the end of the day, information comes from people. So AI, you know, will go and, you know, scour the internet and scour everything that they, it can find um, about elections and, and to answer the question, right? But ultimately, somebody at some point in time had to provide that information and they had to come from a person. So um, we are always going to be faced with mis and disinformation. Do I think AI is going to make it a little bit easier for people to uh, transmit that that false information or misinformation? Yeah, I do. But, you know, we continue to encourage individuals who want to know more about the process, have questions about the process to reach out to your local clerk. They're trusted voices in the industry and they know the, the laws and the policies and the procedures and they can answer questions. So rather than depend on or just... Uh, believe what you may hear in the in the media or what you may hear on social media, uh, Facebook and Snapchat and all of that. Um, just be weary of it and and you know kind of trust but verify. You know what I mean? Like you 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 want to make sure that you can go and verify that information for yourself. I want to ask about turnout because I I know that we're all essentially gearing up for another historical election year. But do you imagine it just looking at the numbers that you have available to yourself, that the association has available to itself? What are you expecting in terms of turnout and enthusiasm to vote in 2024? Well, in 2020, we had record-breaking turnout, if you'll recall. We also had record-breaking registrations. Um, you know, here in Sterling Heights, I did some crunching of numbers. And I think we're at about a 96% registration rate at our presidential in 2020. I think we had about a, I think it was like a 71 or 72% turnout. I think that trend is going to continue. I think um, especially uh, younger individuals are now more in tune and um, want to be a part of that democratic process. So I, I think our numbers, if they, if they don't stay the same, they may increase um, with with regard to our turnout, and that's going to be in person or early voting um, and absentee voting. So, you know, for the presidential primary, you know, that's coming up in February, uh, it's going to be lesser, you know, maybe 30%. But when, and once you start getting into that presidential election, I think our turnout is going to be 
um, pretty dramatic, especially as people catch on to early voting because it's made it so much easier for you to go and cast your ballot. When it comes to the numerous voter accessibility bills that were signed into law this year, especially near the end of this year, uh, which ones do you imagine having the most impact on voters in your own community for 2024? What do you think are going to be the first things that you anticipate them utilizing and taking to their advantage? Early voting. Hands down, I think early voting while in February may be light, I think it will catch on, um, it, you know, for the primary in August and then for the presidential election. I mean, if you think about it, you're talking about nine days, including Saturdays and Sundays. So Saturday, um, two Saturdays before the election, all the way through the Sunday just before the election, you can come in to your uh, early vote center and um, every community has one, whether or not the community is hosting it themselves or if they're partnering with their county clerk uh, to host their early vote center. That's nine days uh, that you have to come and vote and actually mark your ballot and put your ballot into a tabulator. So as far as accessibility, uh, you know, those individuals who might work on weekends or work during the week, I mean, at some point you would hope that somebody has a day off in between there to go vote. Um, the other accessibility aspect um, to me is that that your early your um, is the permanent ballot listing, right? So if voters want to sign up to automatically receive a ballot at their residence um, or wherever they tell us to send their ballot, um, you have that ballot in your possession. You do not have to apply for it um, anymore. It's one application. It's a universal application. It's forevermore until you request to be removed from that. You get that ballot. You um, not only can you mark that ballot and send it back with postage paid on your on your ballot, but you can also take that ballot to your early vote center and um, tabulate that ballot. You put that ballot right into a tabulator and you can also take now take that ballot to a, a precinct on Election Day and tabulate it there. So. Um, it, I think we have made it extremely easy to have access to a ballot and also to return that ballot and get it counted. Obviously, I am sure that as a clerk that you hope that everyone chooses the voting option that is best fit for them. But be honest, you kind of hope that more people choose to put it through that tabulator. That sounds like it was it will save so much more time than absentee. Yes, I mean, I hope and we are pushing for early voting we want our voters to come and visit us um you know during our early vote hours at our at our early vote center which is located at our election center but you know there's a number of people who they're just they're busy and they like the freedom of being able to vote it right you know vote their ballot right in their own home um and while they're sitting there with their computer and their coffee and you know researching their candidates to figure out who you know best um, suits their, their, you know, their beliefs. Um, so I, I, I think all of those options, um, the fact that you can get your ballot at home, um, and then bring it to the early vote center, I think is great. Right. So yes, get it at home, sit it, sit down, but then you can take it to your early vote center. You know, I, I, I'm hoping if for our community in particular, I really want people to come in early vote, whether or not you're voting with your permanent ballot or you're just walking in um, and get your ballot right then and there. I'm, I really hope that people come in early vote. However, we also have an, a huge number of snowbirds in our community. Um, and, you know, obviously that that uh, absentee voting is is um, preferable for them. Well, didn't early counting also get approved this year? 
It did. So in 2020, I can speak for for the city of Sterling Heights. We had around 41,000 um, absentee ballots, and previous law said that we couldn't start counting those or processing those um, until uh, uh, actually tabulating those until election day. So the new legislation now says that we have early processing. So eight days before the election, we can start to, um, you know, take those absentee ballots that are returned to us and we can uh, verify them, you know, check signatures on them, check, um, you know, verify ballot numbers, open them and then actually put them through a tabulator. Now, the tabulators during early voting and early processing uh, for AVs do not, uh, we don't get any results from it, right? Um, but at least we're able to get it into the machine so that they're counted so that on election day, it kind of, you know, alleviates some of the, the you're basically taking the work that you had that you had to do on one day and you're spreading it over eight days if you so choose to do so. When it comes to possible election reform that the legislature could take up in 2024, is there anything that the association is advocating for or do you kind of want a slowdown on election policy changes? At this point, I would I, I think I could speak on behalf of all of the clerks across the state. Please slow down. Now, there are a number of pieces of legislation that need to be cleaned up. Okay, so, you know, for, for example, uh, deadlines, um, you know, uh, voters who uh, pass away prior to Election Day in law, it says that we're required to remove those ballots from the rolls if we become aware of it. But now we have different deadlines with pre-processing and with early voting. Um, we have the, you know, we have a certain deadline on when somebody can spoil their ballot or when um, we can no longer, I mean, if you think about it, if you cast your ballot and we start pre-processing or, or early processing of your ballot and it goes through a tabulator and then, you know, unfortunately, you know, somebody might pass away, I can't go and remove that ballot, right? So there's some conf conflicting legislation out there. I think Clerks, we want um, that some of those conflicts to be resolved, but we um, desperately do not want any new processes and procedures put on us because um, we have been planning all of 2023 just to try to wrap our heads around all the changes that we have. So we, we are very, um, clerks across the state are passionate about their jobs. Um, they take a lot of pride in their work. We want to do things the right way within the the law, you know, the guidelines of our of law. We want to preserve the integrity and security of our elections. And the more we get piled on us, if you will, the harder it is to to do that. So we just um, just please, you know, maybe some cleanup legislation, but the rest of it, let's just slow down for just a minute. What about funding? What are your thoughts on the current state of funding right now? So fortunately, the state does have some um, funding, uh, the state allocated some funding to help local communities in early voting. So we, um, communities and counties submitted requests to the state and said, hey, this is what I need um, to, to do early voting. And which and it's great. So we're we're able to get some equipment. Um, we're able to get some funding for some some workers. 
I think that funding needs to continue. I think it needs to be an annual uh, allocation by the by the state legislature uh, because you know early voting doesn't just happen once. You know, so we're going to have to increase uh, the the number of people that we're hiring. We potentially like I plan on like is is the more early voting grows, I want to have multiple early vote centers or sites. So, you know, that's going to all consist of additional funding. So while, yes, we do have some funding right now um, that's being allocated to counties and local communities, I think that needs to be a consistent allocation in the state legislature um, here going forward to help uh, with that process. So I have one final question for you. The governor signed legislation penalizing individuals for intimidating election officials. What are you most concerned about in terms of intimidation and harassment of election officials in 2024? How are tensions and morale feeling at this moment? That's always a it's it's a that's a question. It's a little bit of a struggle. Um, you know, a number of clerks and election officials, not even only clerks, but um, election officials across the country, if you will, have been met with some um, pretty dramatic um you know, um, not accusations, but pretty dramatic harassments or intimidations, right? Um, There's clerks that have been threatened, you know, their lives have been threatened, their families have been threatened. Um, We have scares of, you know, people trying to intimidate election workers with, you know, putting powder in in envelopes in the mail. Um, So we are on high alert, if you will. Uh, We're very cognizant and conscientious of anything that um, comes to us. Um, of any emails that come to us, mailings that come to us, people that come into our meetings. I have, you know, we've had people that come into our board and our council meetings and they, um, you know, obviously uh, believe that there's some sort of fraud within our system and so on. So we're very cognizant of that. Um, Unfortunately, it seems like, you know, when you give somebody like a, a small morsel of information, so somebody hears one little morsel of information and they, you know, automatically they're an expert, right? And I think whenever somebody hears information, I think again, I'm going to reiterate to to go to your local trusted um, voice in the community, meaning your election official, and get the correct information. There's so many different nuances to law um, that it, to election law that it's 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 incomprehensible um, just at first glance, right? So I've been doing this for I've been in elections for over 20 years. Um, a lot has changed. Um, And I, you know, one thing that always holds true is that perception is reality. So unfortunately, those individuals who believe that there's fraud and who um, are very passionate about it and they and they think it's okay to go and threaten an election official because they think that election official is doing something illegal um, that, that that can't be stood for. Right. So. I think all of the the legislation that the governor signed, I think, will help us be able to remind individuals that 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 behavior is not okay, and that you know they will be penalized for it. It's it's unfortunate, I think, today that we have come to this point in our democracy. I, as an election official, may have to worry about my safety just because I'm trying to do my job. You know, but unfortunately, perception is reality and we have to figure out a way to combat that. And I think um, making it, um, you know, penalizing those individuals who harass or intimidate election officials is a step in the right direction. When you think about 
the commentary of us being in a current state of political polarization and that affecting the roles, the everyday duties of election officials and clerks. Do you believe that this is ultimately the inevitable new normal that we're going to reside in for a while? Or it's just it's just, just a moment in time. I think throughout our history, we've always had politically contentious eras. And I think this is just one of them. I, I don't believe that this is our permanent situation. Um, I think that, you know, it will eventually we'll go back to a more, um, I, I guess, friendly atmosphere. You know, uh, I, I think this whole, this, this whole era the positive that has come out of it is that people are now more engaged. They're more engaged in our democratic process. They're more engaged in holding our leaders accountable. They're more engaged and and know that they have their voices need to be heard. And they're, they know that they have a voice and to see where they want their future country to go. So is it, trying right now uh yes but it, are we in you know one of our um our ebbs at this point yeah um but i don't think it's gonna stay that way forever melanie thank you so much for joining us on the mers monday podcast during this winter holiday new year season uh again everybody this is melanie riska a sterling heights city clerk uh also the first vice president of the michigan association of municipal clerks Thank you for having me. I, I appreciate you reaching out. us now on today's episode of the Burst Monday podcast is Monique Stanton. She is the president and the chief executive officer of the Michigan League for Public Policy. The Michigan League for Public Policy describes itself as a nonpartisan policy institute dedicated to economic opportunity for all. Hello, Monique. How are you doing today? Hi, Sam. I'm doing well. Well, thank you so much for joining us on a pre-recorded interview for the podcast, especially with this being your first day off for the holiday season. I really appreciate it. Some of our listeners do know what the league is and what were some of the things the league was working on in 2023. Uh, But could you clarify for our listeners who don't, who exactly are you and what has 2023 meant for you? Well, we are a 112-year organization serving the state of the state of Michigan, really dedicated on addressing historic economic and racial injustice in our state. And we do our work through data and research, uh, publishing a variety of reports and data sets. We are also the home to Kids Count in Michigan, the annual profile of the health and well-being of children. And then we do deep work in partnership of commu- with community to really get an understanding of what our community's most pressing needs to help us inform and advocate for sound policy solutions and budget investments to improve the overall well-being of our state. Kicking off this year in 2023, a huge issue that the league advocated for was the expansion of the earned income, the earned income tax credit, which is some additional assistance to low income families that are working, uh, but are also within a low, would I dare say a severely low income bracket? Would that be appropriate? Uh, Definitely a low income bracket. So earned income tax credit is something that has been a longtime priority for the league. It's actually something 
both at the federal and in our state have had historic bipartisan support for. And it's a way to address income inequality in Michigan and federally. And so back in 2011, our earned income tax credit that is coupled with the federal tax credit was reduced from 20% to 6%. And we were really at that point at the front line of really trying to help make sure that that earned income tax credit was preserved. That 6% means roughly $150 per family because we knew at a time in the future we'd be able to advocate to get it increased significantly. And we were really excited this year that we didn't see it just increase to 20%. We were actually able to increase it to 30%. And that is a historic win for uh, low-income people in our state, some of the most vulnerable people in our state. And it's going to mean more dollars in the hands of Michiganders. Uh, actually, coming up in middle of February, February 20th, uh, I believe February 13th, individuals, uh, the Treasury will start sending out the checks to, for, to see that increase. So people will start seeing those checks pretty pretty soon. And will those checks in mid-February, will those be from the previous tax year? Yeah, so from the previous tax year. So it was, it was applied for last year, but people did not see that in the return just because of the timing. And so they're actually getting a check mailed to them. Um, it's important for individuals who are either working with, with this population or people who receive the earned income tax credit to know that if their addresses change, they really need to go to the Michigan Treasury Department's website to make sure that their uh, address is update, updated so they get their check. So that was obviously a big win for your for the league this past year. Uh, what were kind of some other 2023 highlights that you want to mention? So it was a big year for the league. We saw movement on a variety of things ranging from significant budget investments we had actually a historic budget over $80 billion this year with lots of investments really focused on addressing inequities in our state. We saw a historic change to our school funding formula, uh, the weighted school funding formula to really address students that live in areas of concentrated poverty, English language learners, increases in, in investments in special education. And we think that's really important, especially because when you look at something like our kids count data, we rank. 42nd in our states. We're in the bottom 10 when it comes to education outcomes. And we need to make sure that we're investing in our children uh, in an equitable way to make sure that, that we're helping to improve, improve educational outcomes. You know, another, uh, another big win, we saw the removal of the five-year waiting period for lawfully residing um, immigrant families to uh, access med Medicaid services for their children, so children uh, to access Medicaid services, the IKEA. And that, I think, is a big win, especially when we talk about being a welcoming state for immigrants. We want to make sure that, that young people, who, you know, young children and pregnant people have access to health insurance and shouldn't have to have that five-year arbitrary wait, waiting Now, period. that was a budget item. Yeah. Okay. Now, what would you describe as the biggest challenges of 2023? What was a moment where you experienced the highest level of aggravation? I don't know if I would say aggravation, but one of the things that we really wanted to see get over the finish line this year was paid family leave in Michigan. And it, it didn't get done this year, but I think we're really hopeful that there's uh, been some continued momentum. There's a strong coalition led by Mothering Justice and a number of other organizations that we're a part of that have really been advocating for the creation of a paid family leave program in Michigan. And we see this as an essential way to support individuals. Most people in their lives need something like paid family leave. It's there for things that are exciting and joyful, like bringing home a new child. 
And then it's there for things that are the most difficult times uh, in a person's life. You have cancer or you're taking care of a parent who's dying and, you know, in home hospice. People should be able to take leave without feeling like they're at risk for losing their job and being put into some kind of economic spiral and, and risk losing their job and, and facing really difficult, having to make really difficult decisions about do you pay for food? Do you pay for medical care? Do you pay for utilities? If, if your job is at risk while you're a caretaker. Why do you think is the reason that paid leave didn't get moved over the finish line this year? I think it was a, a big agenda with a lot of things uh, to do. And so, so I think some of it was timing. Um, I think there's a lot more education or, uh, about what needs to happen. You know, the business community came out pretty strongly opposed to paid family leave, which isn't necessarily a surprise. But one of the things I would say is that, that you look at states across our country that have done this and typically pre-paid family leave programs there's a lot of anxiety among businesses and concern about what's going to be the impact and then post when you look at survey data shows that most businesses haven't seen a negative impact some feel like having a paid family leave program um, has even been helpful for their business because it allows for a way when people need to go out on those leaves because because it, because of how those are paid for and uh, to, to your state, it able, enables people to use the, the program, helps offset some of those costs, and it acts as a retention tool because people then come back to work once they've recovered or their family members recovered or, or something's happened. And, you know, the other important thing I think to recognize about paid family leave is lots of organizations took and made big statements around racial equity in 2020. And we've hired lots of racial equity consultants. We've hired DE&I professionals. But the reality is equity work, racial equity work, really happens in the policy practice. And something like paid family leave, which we know black and brown women especially have less access to these types of programs, that, that's, that's where the rubber meets the road. And so if we want to lean into those racial equity commitments that we've made, we really want to see something like a paid family leave program created in Michigan. But when it comes to the business community, they've ultimately taken the position that while the intentions could be good with this type of policy, there are some hidden price tags associated with it. Um, Also brought up the point that in some states where they have done a similar paid leave policy, that population has actually left. Uh, is that just something that you're not buying at all? Because there's going to be back and forth. Right. So I, I so one thing I think out of our supplemental budget, we're going to have an actuarial study that's done around, around the cost. And I think that will be helpful. Uh, many other states have done actuarial studies to help pave the way for a paid family leave program. So we're excited about that. And when we talk about, about population study, I was a member of one of the Growing Michigan Together Council work groups. I think it's important to recognize that not one thing is going to cause people to either come to a state or leave a state. It's all around whole environment. So there's actually some data out there, survey data that says that, you know, young people are going to be more likely if they're planning on moving to a new state in two years, they're more likely to move to a place that has a paid family leave program. So I would be hesitant to say that any one thing is going to cause or uh, either the population increase or population decrease. It's really around the entire state structure, is it a welcoming environment? Do you have uh, successful schools? Do you have access to health care? Do you have access to good paying jobs? And paid family leave is, is actually a, a part of that. Now, that study, though, is that something that has already been approved or is that something that is part of this package? 
Um, so, actually, so in the last, uh, supplemental bill at the end of the year, there were dollars allocated. I believe it was $235,000 allocated to do an uh, actual aerial study on the paid family leave program. So I want to talk about the Growing Michigan Together Council because you were involved in that process. What the heck was that like? I'm so curious <laughs> because, I mean, it's such a it's such a new concept. And I think even though the report is out, I think a lot of people are still experiencing a bit of whiplash of what exactly does this mean? So could you tell us a little bit more about your experiences on the council and also putting together that report? Sure. So I was I was actually on the work group. I wasn't on the full council. So I was on the jobs, talent, people work group. And there were a number of us from across the state from a variety of different backgrounds that met, one, to get some more in-depth information in addition to the initial report that was published about why Michigan was losing population, about our overall economy, and then come up with recommendations of things sort of within our sphere that we could do. It was a very fast timeline. Um, we had a number of meetings. I think at, at a few moments, it felt like this was becoming either a quarter or a part-time job. But, but we were really committed to trying to put together some good, solid recommendations to the council so they could that could help inform their full report. So the report's out. Um, it does give a good blueprint. I know there's been a lot of criticisms around how do we pay for this. I think that's probably the next step in the conversation. You know, from our perspective, I think the thing that is really important that we focus on is recognizing issues of economic inequality, and racial inequality, going back to those things. It is hard to attract new people to our state when we have areas of deep concentrated poverty, when our school systems have been underfunded for significant periods of time, uh, when we need to have a supportive, welcoming environment for people. And so I think that, that we need to first address some of the things that may, may cause people to want to leave our state. Uh, so we want to make sure that we're retaining people, we're addressing issues of inequities, and then we're building upon that to supercharge for attracting new people to, to Michigan. You know, we, I was really excited about some of the recommendations about uh, becoming a welcoming uh, state, so improving language access, improving access, you know, mentioning the, the need for driver's license restoration for um, undocumented immigrants. Um, that would be a wonderful way to make sure that we're showing that Michigan is a welcoming place. Now, I am curious about talking about the driver li the driver's license. And again, this is something that has been tossed around, that has been presented, but not a lot of movement has happened throughout previous terms. And what exactly is it? It is giving a driver's license to someone who is a undocumented immigrant. Is that correct? Correct. Correct. It would be providing a pathway and making sure that individuals that are undocumented, that are living and working in our community, have a driver's license. And that, well, the reason for that is that we want to make sure that people are insured. It increases safety. And, and that, that is really important to make sure that people have um, access to a driver's license, access to identification. You know, one of the, one of an advocate has talked about that they had to go to the doctor uh, or next to the doctor, the pharmacy to get medication for their child because they had a, an expired driver's license. They were not able to get that medication for their child that was sick at home because they needed to show documentation, uh, some kind of valid identification in order to obtain that. And so I think it's important to recognize the dignity and the humanity in individuals um, and, and know that, that there are these are people that are living and working in our state and they should have something and access to something like um, a driver's license. And that sends a message to 
immigrants in our community and throughout throughout the country that we are a welcoming place for immigrants. And I think I think that's really important. I have heard the observation, though, that the reason why that legislation didn't move at all this year is because of the way that it can get utilized in the political arena. Uh, what are your thoughts on that about the political rhetoric that would latch on to a bill of that nature? So there's there's a lot of rhetoric right now around immigrants and immigrant individuals that are immigrants. And I think the thing that is really important is to recognize the shared humanity and human dignity in individuals. Um, and that is when we're talking about human beings that are here, that are in our community, uh, they are people that want to make a better life for themselves and for uh, their families. And we need to start there. And we need to stay away from some of the awful rhetoric around people that are coming to, to Michigan and to the United States to try to make a better life. And some of that is is rooted in, in a very deep-seated racism. And we want, we want to push back against that and, and really start by recognizing the humanity of people. There is a lot of anticipated angst, if that is appropriate for me to say, when we look at 2024, if it being an election year. Right. Are you concerned about some of the policies that the league has advocated for being used as a political volleyball? Are you concerned about maybe some policies not getting touched, about there being a shortened timeline because of elections? What are kind of your thoughts about that dynamic going into next year? So one of the so we are a nonpartisan organization, and we really focus on addressing economic and racial injustice and the overall health and well-being of Michiganders. Throughout our history, we have stayed committed to our core, and we stay committed to the work that we're trying to do, whether it's an election year or not. And so we recognize, obviously, that some things are going to be more likely to get done if it's not an election year or more likely to get done if it is an election year, but that does not strive strive away from or turn away from really focusing on policy that's going to address economic and racial injustice. So something like driver's license for all, including people that are undocumented, uh, the drive safe legislation, it can be very controversial, but that does not mean that we're not going to continue advocating for it. Okay, looking into 2024. What are some of the big things that you're hoping to get done next year? Could you give us a little a little taste? Absolutely. Absolutely. So I think, you know, one of the number one things on our policy agenda is paid family leave. And we talked a little bit about that already. But we really see that this is an important way to, one, make Michigan a more welcoming place for individuals, but two, also to really support workers, especially lower income workers who historically don't have access to the type of paid family leave programs that upper income individuals um, have, have in our state. Um, so that's a big priority for the league. We also want to talk about social safety net reforms. Uh, TANF, Michi Michigan, we do an abysmal job of spending our TANF dollars, temporary assistance for needy families. That's our cash assistance program. We only spend 6% of our TANF allocation on those direct cash payments. And this is a time that we should be reimagining our social safety net. So RX Kids is a phenomenal program that's getting launched in, uh, in, for, in the city of Flint. It is similar to a guaranteed basic income program where they're providing cash payments to pregnant people and, um, and during the first year of a child's life. And cash really is a prescription for addressing poverty and all the social determinants of health consequences that individuals and kids face when they grow up living in poverty. And we see something like RX Kids 
as a pathway for us to really think innovatively and creatively of how we can overhaul our social safety net system in Michigan. So that's another really big thing. So could you just kind of reiterate what exactly are TANF dollars and how do you imagine as some unique ways that they could be used that they're not being used for currently? Right. So um, so TANF, when somebody is living, having some, some type of crisis in their life and they've lost their income, they can access cash assistance in Michigan. And cash assistance, we only spend 6% of those dollars on cash payments. And so where does the rest of that 90 Um, 4% go, it goes to pay for things like college scholarships, it goes to pay for things related to child welfare, important things and things that actually the league prioritizes and things are really vital things for for our state. But that's not how cash assistance and a tool to alleviate deep poverty should be used. We should be paying for those things out of things like our block grant dollars or other state, our, our general fund dollars, other state types of allocations. And so some ways that we can improve our cash assistance system, we can increase our payment. We have a really low payment in Michigan. We can um, do something like Rx Kids. Can we expand that? So again, thinking creatively about how we can use cash as a way to help alleviate poverty. Um, we're going to be actually talking about this at our upcoming public policy forum in April. And I think, again, we really have felt like we've met with lawmakers both Republicans and Democrats, our social safety net is something that's come up pretty pretty often. And so we're hopeful that there's an openness to really thinking about how, how we can do things differently in Michigan. Now, what are the kind of the current the current cash payments? So for a statement, a payment standard for a family with one parent and two children has been $492 since 2008. And so that is a significant is really not enough money to help make your ends meet at a really cr- critical crisis time in your life. And so we really want to look at how are, what are things that we can do to help alleviate deep poverty and to help an individual move out of that crisis and then get connected to other types of support services, whether it's career education or workforce development, uh, but really first starting making sure that they have access to the basic needs um, to make ends meet at that and and just to confirm, this is federal money that's already in the state's possession. So the state wouldn't have to do anything differently to spend the money differently. Right. No, this, this is part. The challenge is that Michigan uses our cash assistance program, our TANF dollar allocation for other things in our state budget, like a paying for college scholarships right now. And so, again, we believe in college scholarships. That's really important. We need to boost post-secondary college attainment and degree attainment especially if we want to see incomes boost over over the long period of time. But our position is that those are not the best use of TANF funding. TANF is really to help address an individual's crisis when they're living in deep poverty and they need that immediate assistance. What else are you hoping to see in 2024? I think it's important to start talking about a child tax credit in Michigan. And so we saw the uh, reduction of the temporary expansion of the child tax credit at the federal level this year. And what we saw was a more than doubling of childhood poverty across our country. And so Michigan really should take an opportunity to create our own child tax credit that is targeted to, again, people that are living in deep poverty who don't have, um, who have no to very low incomes as well as those individuals that are living sort of in that Alice income threshold, so 
sort of known as the working poor. We want to make sure that that, that child, a child tax credit is accessible for both. Um, and then the other big thing that we're working on is child care. Um, that was a disappointment from, from 2023. We were really hoping to see uh, a continuation of the temporary increases in the child care subsidy that were made as a result of COVID. And unfortunately, that didn't get over the finish line. And so many child care providers in Michigan, especially those that take the subsidy, saw a 20, 21, 22% reduction in their payments. And that's a steep reduction in an already very fragile business. And so we really want to take some time looking at childcare and investments in the childcare subsidy. Thank you so much for listing off so many different things, both from this past year and for next year. As we begin to wrap up this interview, this is going to be part of our New Year's Day episode. So happy New Year's to everyone who's listening. Yeah, great. Well, thank you so much for having me, Sam. It's really been a pleasure. I know we've talked a lot over this year. And this has been a great wrap up to 2023. And we're really looking forward to, to 2024. Uh, we thought of this past year as sort of a marathon at a sprint pace all year. It was a pretty wild year. We actually weighed in on more than 250 bills, provided written or verbal testimony 21 times. And we're looking forward to another busy year, hopefully at a similar type of pace. So 2024, less bills or more bills? I guess, I'm going to guess it's going to be a little bit less than this past year, but hopefully not too much less. Thank you so much, everyone. This is Monique Stanton. She is the CEO of the Michigan League for Public Policy. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Sam. And that's going to do it for today's episode of the MERS Monday podcast. I want to clarify that while our interview with President John Walsh of the Michigan Manufacturers Association took place on December 29th, my interviews of CEO Monique Stanton of the Michigan League for Public Policy and First Vice President Melanie Riska of the Michigan Association of Municipal Clerks were conducted on December 21st, ahead of the Christmas holiday. Thank you so much, John, Monique, and Melanie for all joining me to make today's New Year's Day episode. Oh, so happy new year to everyone listening. My questions to each of you listeners would be the first one. What are your personal New Year's resolutions? What are some of your superstitions or little rituals for ensuring you have a successful new year? And what stories do you think are going to have the most intense influence on the opening days of 2024? I look forward to talking to you all more this year. And again, happy new year. Post-production of the Merce Monday podcast is by Mark Bashore Audio and Okamets. Thanks to him for putting this audio together. Additionally, thank you to AT&T for sponsoring this and all of our other podcasts. Until next time, I am Samantha Shriver. Nights under the pink and white sunset Time I won't forget Colors fill up my head They last me up Oh, take me back to summer nights with you Too good to be true Sweet
Oh. 